right, now, we were in chapter 13. In chapter 13, we saw the unholy trinity come up. We saw Satan, the man but called the beast that comes from the sea, and the man but also called the beast that comes from the land. So that's an unholy trinity whom God is going to allow to do miracles, some of which are greater than what God has ever evidenced, not greater than anybody could ever do. But God is going to allow this unholy trinity to do things that are so huge, so dramatic, so incredible, that all the world is going to bend its knee. Now, they're either going to bend it towards Christ or they're going to bend it towards this unholy trinity. Now, that's not normally the way we think of that verse, and that's not what it actually means, but you get what the point is. Every knee is going to bow. Now, here's what's said. A lot of people who, you know, they don't know Christ, or they just don't, I would never do that. You know what I mean? If you're Christian, you get worship. But I would never bend my knee to, you know, some demonic thing, and I would never do anything like that. I'd never worship anything. I'm the kind of person who would never do worship anything. I, you know, this is not my frame of reference. Here's what you have to remember about Revelation and what God's doing in Revelation. God is making it impossible for you not to go somewhere for help. That's what he's doing. One in three people in all the world are going to die. And there's going to be years of such trauma, such fear, such fright, such anxiety, such just literally life-threatening stuff that when a false savior comes, you're either going to turn to the false savior or you're going to go to God who is the real Savior. You're going to look for a Savior because life sucks that bad. I mean, the world is falling apart. God is letting it. Things happen that we have never seen. That's what's going to happen there. So everybody is going to choose somebody. And you think you're not going to do that? I would say, be careful what you think. Because you're going to find yourself in a situation that might be a little late if you don't catch so that's what we're doing here. And, and one of the things that I want us to get is, so that's chapter 13. At the end of chapter 13, God is saying something to his saints, which is, beware of a couple of different things, just a couple little things. Because if you're not, you could get deceived, because even the elect will be deceived if it were possible. That means various things that we've already talked about. The bottom line, here's the passage that we get to. He, meaning the false prophet, the second beast, he requires everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless they have the mark, the beast's name or the number of his name. Here's wisdom. The one who has understanding must calculate the number of the beast because it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Now, just... Briefly, this passage right here in theological circles gets all kinds of play because they're trying to figure out who the 666 is, right? How many people have heard it's the king of Spain or, or you know, this guy or that guy or anything else, right? And people are trying to figure out, and they do this in commentaries. They work through, this is who this is, okay? But do understand something. This passage is so popular that it has totally infected culture as a whole, right? If you go to a movie about some demon child, at some point in the movie, they're going to pull the hair back or do something, and there's going to be a 666 tattooed on that kid, right? Right? We've all seen it. Well, now just do something right there. Just look at how stupid that is, because it's not saying that the demon has the 666 tattooed on him. It says we do. <laughs> and it's not even 666. It's just the mark. It's the name that allows for something else to happen. See what I mean? So it's a conflation of a bunch of different ideas that even get into, say, Harry Potter books. The whole idea of a mark that brands, that determines destiny. This is this thing. We're marked. Okay? So you see, this is, this is something that's out there all the time in a way. This is infected popular culture and in a way that it gets skewed. So let's just take a brief minute to go back and make sure that we have some sense of what these terms mean and so on. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this because we're going to spend it on the thing that's more important that this is getting to. But what happens in these kinds of passages is we always put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. Right? Emphasis syllable. That's what the words are supposed to be. But we put the emphasis on the wrong syllable and we end up spending a whole bunch of time on something that doesn't matter and miss what does. So let's take the second thing first. Okay? This is, here is wisdom, the one who has understanding must calculate the number of the beast. 
When he says that, when John says that, when he writes that, and by the way, let me make it clear, when the Holy Spirit writes that through John, the Holy Spirit is trying to clue us in here. When he says you must calculate the number, do you understand, this is a very popular thing to do, particularly in that day and age, right? Hebrew letters had certain numerical values, Greek letters did, Aramaic letters did, Latin letters did, all this kind of stuff. They have these values, these numerical values, and you can add them up. And this is a way of referring to people. This person's number is, and it was the, their letters, okay? Now, before you start thinking, oh, that's just wacky and stupid and all that kind of stuff, A, the Holy Spirit's the one referring to it here. <laughs> so apparently it's not as wacky and stupid as we think, but do you understand something? This is one of the geniuses of God. My brother Jim Brunk would fit right in here in, in Microsoft. He, anyway, he, he would fit right in programming land here. And the reason why is because the guy is just crazy genius smart about numbers. Now, could you just do me a favor, actually, just right now? I just, he's going to be watching this next week, so would you just turn around and say, Hi, Jim. Hi, nice to see you, Jim. Love you, Jim. Okay. So you must move out here, Jim. Okay. So the point is, is that, is that Jim is a guy who crazy smart with numbers Read a book by Jerry Lucas a long time ago. I can't remember what the title of the book was, but some people know about the book. And it was about numerology in the Bible. And it, it's not hocus pocus. There's actually numerical things that God is doing in Scripture because, see, God made people that are crazy, genius, smart about numbers. And the Scripture is speaking to them too. And Jim came to the Lord because he saw that there was an order in here, that there really was a pattern in here, and it wasn't a random one. It wasn't one that was fit. It was one that came out of in real ways. So I want to say, this is, God is operating on all these different levels all the time that are just phenomenal, and there is no other book that's even remotely close to it in the number of ways. Emotional people, artistic people, numbers people, everybody has a depth that God is revealing that is amazing. So having said that, what I want to do is I just want us to look at what's the number that's being calculated here. And I want to make it clear who it is. Okay? I'm telling you who the Antichrist is. Are you ready? It's the king of Spain. No, wait a minute. He died. It's one of the people that's running for election right now for sure. Because by the end of the election cycle, that's what everybody will be saying about the other side. Right? And they'll both have calculated why this has to be that person. Okay. All right. All right. Here's who it actually, well, oh, by the way, this is Ronald Wilson, right? This is one of the guys who was calculated to be the beast because, and what the simplest way, there were other more complicated ways, but Ronald Wilson Reagan, six letters in each word. Okay, now now we're into stupidness, okay? When I say we're getting there through something silly, this is the silly part, okay? When we go after it, here's who the Bible is in fact referring to. Now, not only to this person, we'll get to that, but it's Nero or Neron, in his formal thing. And there's actually, through Hebrew, you can get to 666, through Greek, you can get to 666, and through Latin, which this is the Latin way of doing it. These are the actual, this, this isn't made up so that it fits Neron. This is the way that you would have used the numbers, and it adds up to 666. And John, the Holy Spirit through John, is clearly communicating something about Nero. Now, Having said that, when I say that it can fit a whole bunch of different people, smart people in here are going like this. Well, then you can do anything with numbers. You can make it fit. That's actually not true. You can't make Kurt Brunk come out to be 666. Thank you, God. Now, Paul Curtis Brunk, on the other hand, no. Okay. All right. But you go to Nero. Now, I want to show you something about how much the people of the day understood that this was actually Nero. You actually have some manuscripts that change the number 666 to 616. And the reason why they do that, that's very rare in Scripture, by the way. That never happens. But it does happen in this instance. And the reason why is because that's the formal name for Nero. The informal, the, the informal name is Nero. Take out the 50 and you get 616. And they, these people are trying to say, He's trying to communicate Nero. Now, do understand something. Does that mean Nero is the Antichrist? No. Nero's actually dead at the time that John writes this. Nero comes in after Christ's death, and before John writes the book, he's committed suicide. Do you remember the one place where John the Baptist is said to be Elijah the prophet? Jesus says, this is who this is. This is what we're talking about. What we need to do when we look at this is we need to say, 
you see, we put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. This name adds up to 666, so Ronald Reagan must be it. And yet Ronald Reagan has none of the characteristics of Nero. Here's what Nero is. Nero's like the pinnacle of yuck and bad. Nero, yuck is way too, killing him off way too lightly. Nero's the guy who kills his own mother. May I say, though, she deserved it. Okay? Now, my mom is watching, too. I love you, Muzz. You don't. Okay? But I do want you to know she deserved it. Seriously. You read the story, you're like, yeah, I'd probably kill her, too. Okay? But, but the bottom line is, <laughs> that's not the Mother's Day sermon. Okay. It could be, though. You know, a warning. Okay. <laughs> what you're going after is <laughs> sorry Greg is just losing it I'm going to start losing it now All right. the thing about Nero that you have to remember is how bad things got Remember, here's how most people know Nero Nero fiddled while Rome burned that's what we call an anachronism it means it's out of time because they didn't have fiddles they did however have lyres and there's a pretty good chance that he was in fact playing his lyre while Rome was burning in fact, what most people believe historically and certainly in the day, what they believed was is that Nero was the one that started the fire in order to clear out some space so that he could expand his palace, which he in fact did. It got so bad, though. See, what happens is people don't really like it when you burn down the city to build your palace, so they don't like you very much. So what Nero did is he said, I didn't do it. It was the Christians. Now, that unleashed something that was already there, but it took it to a whole new level. This is Tacitus, who is a historian of the day, of the day. And he's talking about this, and I want to make something really clear here. Tacitus is, hates Christians. This is not a friendly Christian audience guy. Tacitus is merely reporting on what Nero did to these hated Christians. And here's what he says. Consequently, to get rid of the report that Nero had fired the city, had burned the city down, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians or Christians by the populace. Christus, for whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hand of one of our procreators, Pontius Pilate. Okay, so you think that Jesus isn't real and all that kind of stuff if you're one of those kind of people. There's way too much evidence of all of this and the effect of Christianity. And I mean, you know, it's just here, right? So here we go. Christianity thus checked for the moment again broke out not only in Judea, but even in Rome. Accordingly, an arrest was made of all who pleaded guilty. In other words, everybody who said they were Christians. Are you a Christian? Yes. Well, then go over here. Are you not? Then go over here. See? Then upon their information that they'd given up, an immense multitude was convicted. Now listen to this. Not so much of the crime of firing the city, of burning the city down. That's not why people were mad at them. People just hated them. And in fact, what he says is, look, not so much for firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Do the research on this. This is a fascinating topic for you. Every time that Christian persecution breaks out huge, same thing mostly with Jewish persecution. Go back and look at whether or not it was deserved. It never is. There wasn't anything that Christians were doing. You know what? Christianity was not like some power religion that was overcoming and, and dictating behaviors and all that kind of stuff. Christianity was a very small percentage of the population, mostly slaves, mostly common people. All they were doing was not partaking in all the things that the Romans were doing, and it was inciting a hatred for them as they stood apart from the culture that was so decadent, even as Tacitus says, everything wicked was in Rome. He wasn't a big fan of Rome either. But the bottom line is, they hated him. Now listen to this. Mockery of all sorts was added to their deaths. Carved, covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished. You understand what that means? They clothed them with animal meat and skin so that dogs would come and eat them alive. But that's not the worst of it. Watch this one. Nailed to crosses or were doomed to flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Um, Nero built these palatial gardens and he would take Christians that were alive. He would douse them in flammable oil. He would stake them to a, a pole and light them on fire to illuminate the gardens. 
This is crazy. This is nuts. This is so far beyond. This is what we were talking about when we said that there comes this satanic lunacy, inspiration that takes you to places that you just can't even conceive. It's so far beyond anything reasonable or rational that you just lose the ability to comprehend it's even possible. And yet for those who think that it isn't possible, it has happened. And not just once. Over and over. So what's being said is this beast, now we got the right word, right? This antichrist beast does things that are crazy. And that's how you know it's the antichrist. Will his name add up to 666? Yes. I believe so, absolutely. I'll show you why in a sec. Yes, it will, because God can do a lot of things on a lot of levels to a very literal degree. But not understanding that someone's name adds up to 666 doesn't make them the Antichrist. It's that they're crazy, that they're satanically inspired. That's what makes them the Antichrist. <laughs> See it? So put the emphasis on the right syllable. This is what he's trying to point out to us. It's going to be somebody like Nero who is just going to do things that are unimaginable. Now, you've heard that antichrists are coming and already such antichrists have appeared. This is John saying this spirit is going to happen and happen and happen and happen and happen and happen. See, it's going to just keep going. And so what happens is we even get, take a look at this one. This is, this is the actual way that you account for um, Roman numeral numbers. You start at 100. And then you just add one point to each one, and you get Hitler at 666. Okay? You, you don't get that in other names. You just don't. Okay? So I'm just telling you, on a very literal level, and yet much more than just literal. How can a thing be more than literal? It can. It's the fullness thereof. And what's being said is, is we're learning something about God and the way that he communicates and who he is that just goes on all sorts of levels. In fact, let me show you another level at which 666 works. What's the number of a man? What's the number of God? Seven. Now think about what that's trying to tell you, numerically, numerology. Think about what that's saying. Seven is divine, perfect, complete. We are what? made in his image. We're very close to seven, but we're not seven. We're six. We're something less than seven. Close, but not. You hear it? So 666 is also working on the level of it is the number of a man. Now that could be referring to it's a human being, but it also could be cluing us into that these numbers are 666, the unholy trinity. Each one of them, like unto God, close, a saint and an anointed angel, two human beings made in the image of God, but none of them is the fullness. Seven, 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 the divine trinity, the three times holy, the three times seven, the, the, you see what I mean, perfect in every degree. So see how many different ways this, this language is working? And may I say something? It's not you pick one from column A and one from column B. It's all true. That really is true. Now, there's ways that we can go that are silly, as we pointed out earlier, and then you don't go there because it's violating the spirit of it. But the truth is, is God is able to work on a very literal level and a transcendently literal level all at once because that's who he is. Magnificent God. Okay, so let's be done with that. And let's go to, he requires everybody small and great, rich and poor, to be given a mark on the right hand of the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, the beast name. Here's what's really important about this. When we read that, I think we tend to read it something like this. If I want groceries, I need to get the mark. If I want to eat, if I want to have a job, if I don't want to starve to death, if I don't want my kids to starve to death, if I don't want my wife to starve to death, I need to get the mark. And that's why people get the mark. It's because they're compelled to. No, actually, if you read that carefully, and I could put up other translations, but I got so much, I'm not going to do it. But the bottom line is, I want you to understand, what's being said more in there is, he's requiring them to do it, or they can't eat. 
This is, by the way, historically accurate. Remember when we were looking at the seven letters to the churches? We saw two churches where the Christians in there were being persecuted. And then part of the nature of the persecution was, do you worship Caesar? And if you worship Caesar, you get papers. And if you get papers, do you have the papers? If you get the papers, then you can... That wasn't a very good German accent, was it? Okay, it was more kind of Hispanic almost, wasn't it? Okay. But if you, if you have the papers... Or I can't say it right. Anyway... If you have the papers, then you could be in the community that was doing business and eating and doing all. And if you didn't have those papers, then you couldn't interact in a commercial way in your culture. So, so they were obviously starving and having to make do and do all that kind of stuff. So again, historical precedent for it. But, but, but to go to the deeper place on this, think about what this is actually saying. You're getting a mark on your hand. What's a mark on the hand signify to you? If you're using symbolic language, what's a mark on the hand? What's it mean? What, it's, it's what you put your hands to, what you do. The right arm, the right hand, that's what you do. What you do is that stuff that you've taken the mark of. What's a mark on the forehead about? How you think. See, if you think a certain way and you... You see what I mean? And you do a certain thing, then you're marked, aren't you? That's the way that you do it. Now, here's the key to it. The mark very much has to do with the head, the heart, the hand. The heart. The people that are accepting this, it, it does say that there's Christians that aren't accepting it. Don't accept it. They're not being compelled. They're not just being taken aside and branded, and now you can go buy groceries. You're not being compelled to take the mark. You're being required to do it or you can't get food. But the people that are taking the mark are doing so willingly and not just to get food. You remember what it says? The whole world worships the beast. Worships the beast. People are not getting tattooed by compulsion. They're choosing to get tattooed. They're putting this. <laughs> See? Roseanne. Rosanna. Okay? Now, just to be clear about the fickleness of human nature, be careful about what you tattoo your body. <laughs> okay? <laughs> I love that. Is that the greatest or what? <laughs> Come on, that's funny. <laughs> oh, man. All right. But, but here's, here's my point, and it's almost bad to make the point after the joke, but the joke was too good, so I used it. But, but here's the point, okay? People are making, when you tattoo a name on your arm, what are you trying to say? I'm, I'm declaring this to the world, I am yours forever. I love you and only you. Anybody else is going to see my big tattoo with Rosanna on there, or Julie on there, and they're not going to, they're going to, see, I'm promise to someone else. This is the nature of the mark. It is something that is chosen by the people who have gone through hell. One in three people dying. Fear for years and years. Now a person comes and brings peace. I love this man. I love this. And look at the miracles. I'm right to love this person. Do you understand? The mark is about Love. Would you like me to just bring that home to really show you what I mean by that? Remember, all the things that the unholy trinity does, our imitations, our mimicking, is a usurping of the godly patterns. When I talk about having a mark on your hand or your forehead, what would that bring to mind to somebody here who would know that kind of stuff? It is, it is very much that, and we're going to get to that, but it's even closer in this day and age. The phylacteries. That's what we call them, by the way, in English. The, the, the actual name is uh, tefillin. Tefillin, okay? And tefillin is, see what these are. See the little box up here? And see the little box down here? There's one on the arm. If you're right-handed, you do it on your left. If you're left-handed, you do it on your right, okay? But what you're doing is, is it's saying, I put his scriptures on my mind. And I think about him in all of my actions. I act accordingly in all that I do. Because I love him. See, now here's the interesting thing about the tefillin. 
They're not tattooed on you. There's something that you have to pick up daily at your morning prayers. And you gladly bind yourself in his love. You gladly bind yourself in his word. You see it? Now that's the imitation of what the tattoo is. And by the way, just so that you know, we don't have to read them. But these are the four, and they're longer passages, and they're longer, and I didn't want to have to read them all. But you look at this one, Deuteronomy 6, 4, right down here. Here always the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. You ever heard that one before? Right? New Testament, right? And then what he says, look, he says, bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. I love God. I'm coming before him. I'm taking these things on. You see that? The whole world is either going to have Tefillin or the Mark of the Beast. One or the other. And it'll be a choice. So having said that, we need to note something. Jesus said about those who, even here, love him right now. Jesus said about them, be careful, because things will get so difficult in the end that it is possible that the love of many will grow cold. Not possible, it will happen. People that currently love him, their love will grow cold. Why? How? What's going on here? Well, this is where we're getting to the meat. And, and before I do it, I just want to give a huge shout out to Mike Byron on a whole lot of different levels because you just are phenomenal. But, but bottom line, I'm in prayer on Wednesday about this sermon, and it's clear to me where I'm supposed to go. But I have no sense of how to get there. I don't know the illustration. I don't know the, the thing to talk about. I know what the feeling is. It has to do with love. It has to do with something. But I can't get to the place. And I'm on my walk. And I'm, I'm spending time. And I'm really wrestling with it. I mean, I really wrestled. I went around in a certain thing. I went around and around. And people must have thought I was crazy. Because I just kept, I kept going, I don't have it yet. I don't have it yet. And I really pressed into God. And then all of a sudden... At, at, at one point, I just felt like I'd really prayed, and I felt like the Lord said to me very clearly, you're going to know what this is tomorrow morning. Don't pray about it anymore. I'm going to give it to you. So I get home, and I get an email, and normally I wouldn't even have looked at it because I don't have time. But I, 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 I saw it, and I went, oh, just in case, and I watched the thing, and I want to tell you right now, I'm, I don't usually do as much of this as I'm going to do, and even then I always change everything. But uh, this is heavily borrowed from a guy from the email that he sent me. Because this was that. This was God saying, this is how I want you to communicate this obvious truth in a way that we'll all see how much we're actually missing what we actually think we got. That is the central part of Christianity. That goes to this thing of not letting your love grow cold, not having it even be possible. So, having said that, we're going to do something. I have on my trusted ally on this stuff because it always does so good and some of the times you're going to be sitting instead of the way I sent you the notes and everything else okay but this is Jeff Stevens give him a hand now because he's going to go through hell okay <laughs> all right all right so the first way that I want to do it is right here you under God okay so Jeff hit the floor okay this is God God is my where this is God in a box okay all right, you know that he, he doesn't like it to be in a box, but nonetheless, we put him in our box, and that's what we're going to be looking at. So this is God in our box, and what I want to do, this first one is you under God, which means, okay, the weight, okay, the weight, the crushing weight of God. Now think about this for a second here. This is the religious impulse of all the world. We're going to be mostly talking about Christians and how we appropriate these things. But the bottom line is, let me just show you something. The religious impulse in all the world is that God is angry because we're such screw-ups and that we have to do something to appease him. So if you're in a tribal place and you want your crops to go well, you take the virgin girl and throw her in the volcano. Okay? Or the girl that broke up with you. Either one. Okay? But you appease the angry God. Okay? Now, if you're... Now watch, this is a religious impulse in a very deep way, but I want you to understand something. This is true. I'm not being unfair if you're Muslim. I'm being careful here now. But the, but the conception of the Muslim God is that he is angry at sinful mankind. And if you 
say the prayers, do the rituals every day in a certain way, faced a certain way, in a certain routine, with a certain formula. If you do those every day, if you do all five pillars, in fact, then you've actually got a chance of going to some place that's better than the place where they're going to experience his wrath all the time. But by the way, the place that you're going is not actually going to be with him. It's just going to be a better place than this place, the bad place. It'll be heaven. And it'll be a good place. But you're still not being, God is still way too holy for you to ever be with him, even in heaven. Make that clear. That's true. I'm not making this up. Do some research. Let me know if you find something different on it. I'll show you why I say what I say. And the bottom line is, is what I want you to think about is this religious impulse of a crushing weight that is God. Thank you for letting me crush you. Now, how do we Christians appropriate the crushing weight of God? Because clearly, we would never think that the rules and the regulations of God were just too much to bear. Anybody ever had that thought? Seriously, you don't have to raise your hands, don't. But have you ever just felt like, it's just too much, I just can't do it. I just can't live up to it. The guy who, who did this video works with college kids. He said something extraordinary. He said, I'm talking to kids in a Christian school that, went to, that came up, brought up in Christian homes, many of which were even missionaries' kids. And here's, when I, when I asked him this question, after I heard and heard, he said, I finally asked him this question. He said, how do you think God thinks about you? These college kids, Christian homes, missionaries' kids, every one of them said this. God is profoundly disappointed in me. Why? Young men, don't say it out, but you know why. You know what being filled with testosterone and hormones and not good frontal lobe and all that kind of stuff is about? Young women, you have a totally different kind of sin, but it's there. And you just sin, and God has these rules and these regs, and you violate them. And surely God is bringing a crushing weight upon you. He's profoundly disappointed in you. Now, when you get older, I don't think you do that so much anymore. I don't think you think about God in terms that he's profoundly disappointed in you. You, you think about it like that. You get that he loves you. Not because he has to. But isn't it kind of close to that? I still make all these mistakes and God loves me, the screw-up. I don't get it right. Maybe there is actually somebody in here that gets it just right. You know, you do everything right. You're actually going to find a much more profound disappointment. And that is you're going to do everything right, and God still has a different plan than what you think. And when it happens, and you can't figure out why it happens, it's going to feel bad. Like you did something wrong, and like he's mad at you. And why is he mad at me? Why is he doing this? That's how you can interpret what's happening in your life when he's actually trying to do something wonderful for you. It's just different than what you wanted. But most people live in that other camp where what they actually do is, is they make mistakes on a hopefully lesser frequency, but still on a fairly regular frequency. And there's just this guilt that is just this crushing burden that is upon us. And it just is hard to live under. Now, I recognize that when you get older, stay there, don't move. I recognize that when you get older, you're not going to think that way all the time. But can I do something? We're, if, if you've got your laptops now and your devices, I told you it was in the sermon too. So open up your devices. If you don't have a device, take out your thing. But can I say something? Please open your devices because you're going to see results on this. Not your personal, like we're going to say, John Yalkowski, here's what he answered. It's, it's just taking, this is Survey Monkey, and it's just going to average the responses to what it is that we're talking about here. Okay? So it's in your notes. So take out your notes and grab a pen. And can I say something? Don't look on your neighbor's work. By the way, if you don't have a note and you need one, raise your hand right now. Ushers, thank you for bringing those forward. Okay, and there's a pen in front of you. If you need a pen, raise your hand too. You'll want to play along, okay? This will be helpful, more helpful if you do. All right, so log in. And could you guys show them how to log in to get to SurveyMonkey? See the monkey right there? That's SurveyMonkey, okay? Now just click on it. And then you see where it takes you? Look at that. See, you under God, and there's your question right there, okay? Raise your hands if you need a, a, a form or a pen, okay? So here it is on a scale of 1 to 10. Now, um, go, go back to my slide, if you could, okay? You under God, here's my question for you. 
Okay, I'm going to click. How much do you feel your posture towards God is that he has a crushing weight? I'm just asking you to one to five it. One means not at all. I never, ever feel that. Five means I feel that all the time. I always feel like that. Now, I, I don't know if anybody in here is going to really be a one. That you just never have a thought like that. So you catch the drift. So write it down and click on it and put your, put your marker in there, okay? You can do it on your smartphones, by the way. It works great. Okay? Now, has everybody voted? Because I'm going to show you the results on this, and I want us to see this. I'm really asking for something here. We have anonymous. We're doing this anonymously. So can we have transparency, please? Don't answer in the way that you think you're supposed to answer. That's not going to help you. Being honest with God is a lot more important than being, right, and giving him the answer you think he wants. Okay? Are we good? Has everybody voted? No? We're not there yet? Oh, people can't log on. Is that still the problem? Oh, bummer. Okay. Well, go ahead and go ahead and show it. I'm sorry. You know, we did test it. We thought about this. I just want you to know. And we were told we'd be fine with more than 200 people logging in at once, but apparently not. But I just want you to see, uh, look, 20% said never at all, 37% said two, 33% said three, 8% said four, nobody said I feel it all the time. That's about what I expected. But do you see how many people say two or three? This really is in their life. This idea of God and his rules and his regulations just being more than I can bear. Let's just, let's just do a quick little piece of work here to clean that up in our hearts and minds. Go back, would you, to me? Thank you. Okay. The accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth. This is Revelation 12, and this is talking about Satan when he gets fully cast out of heaven. But look what he's doing until then. He is sitting before God, accusing us day and night. Do you see that? But what's actually happening? Jesus is the one that is right at the right hand. Who's going to condemn us? No one. Christ Jesus died for us, was raised to life for us. He's sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, and he's pleading for us. Yeah, Satan's making his accusations, but God at the right hand is interceding for you, pleading for you. Why? Because he has to? Why? Because you're a screw-up and he's just going to work it out for you? You know, whatever? No, much more profound than that. Let's go to the next one. Okay? All right. You're up. Okay? You over God. Okay? Don't take this up yet. Okay? You over God. Come on up. Okay? Now, this is, this is that impulse that is the scientific one. This is the modern age. We don't need no more mythology. We got what we need. We understand the principles and the laws of the universe so we know better. Now, now the person that's truly the atheist doesn't even put God in the picture. They're just over. They understand what the principles are. They're working the principles. They're working the laws. This is what they're doing, right? So that's that impulse. Now, how does, how does Christianity manifest that impulse? Well, think about it for a second. See, the reason why your life isn't going well is because, see, there is this book, and this book has got a bunch of principles in it. And the reason why your life isn't going well is because you're, you're listening to Oprah's principles, or, or you're listening to scientific principles, or you're listening to some guru's principles, or you're listening to some other religion's principles. These are the right principles. You understand? What's it still all about? Principles. So, okay, can that go wrong? Has anybody ever seen, you can act this out, has anybody ever seen a fundamentalist sitting on a street corner with a Bible in their hand, yelling and screaming at people? Has anybody ever seen that? Can I say something? It's not bad for you to stand on a street corner sometime. It's not. It, it's just that, yeah, see? <laughs> I love Jeff. That's why I love Jeff. <laughs> see? <laughs> Do you see it? Is it, is it possible to have the principles and not the person? Does that happen in life? Because there's, not, there's nothing like, say, the faith doctrine that says, you know what I mean, you work the principles right, you get them right, you say the right things and you believe the right way and you do this the right way. You understand the principles, the laws. Literally, they're called laws. You do the laws right, and what will happen? God has to do it. That's, that's what a law is, right? 
wrong. Okay? Here's, here's like the fundamentalist. Here's the scripture for that one. You've, you have in your heads, you have your heads in your Bibles constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there. But you miss the forest for the trees. The scriptures are about me. Should we be reading our Bibles? Are there principles in there that are incredibly important? You need to work the principles. But there's a way of working the principles that isn't about the person any longer. Let's try and make this really real for us. When you're young, I did all the principles right, God. I understood that you weren't a hard, over-me, crushing weight, God. But, but, but God, I read my Bible. I went to youth group. I studied hard. I did everything, and I didn't get into Harvard. Why? Now, see, the Christian says, why? The person in the world that doesn't have a God says, well, because like one in a thousand do. You know, and I just wasn't one in a thousand. But the Christian takes it to God. See, the reason I didn't get in, the reason why I didn't get that person, I followed the principles. Or, I didn't follow the principles, and that's why it didn't happen for me. And I understand you're not a heavy, crushing God. You see how these interplay with each other. I understand you're not a heavy, crushing God, but bottom line is, a, a young person says, this is why I didn't have happen what I wanted to have happen, but you do realize that old people are just young people and worse skin. <laughs> right? I mean, what's going on inside of our hearts is, is the reason why I don't have the job that I thought I was going to have when I was younger is because of these screw-ups that I did. See? I, you know, I didn't live up to the principles. It wasn't hard, God. But I, but I you know, or worse, I'd love to live up to the principles and God didn't do it for me. Now what am I supposed to do? I need to back off from God a little bit. I need to, is God really the God I thought he was? You do realize that in adults, there's a schizophrenia that takes place as we get older, more so. A facade that we build. God is the God who wants to do things for me. But it didn't really happen for me. And yeah, it was because of what I did, but also I just don't know if I can really trust God. I believe, this is the schizophrenic part, my facade is, oh, God helps us, God meets us, God does all these things. But, but really, in my life, there's these hurts. God did 10 miracles for me. You know human nature is such that God can do 100 miracles for you, but it takes one hurt to overwhelm all of those good things. The one where he hurt you is the one that we tend to live in. So let's do this one, okay? Go ahead and help, hop down. You over God, how much do you feel like your posture towards God is all about doing or working his principles? Again, vote, you know what I mean? Go to the website, and we're going to show it to you in one second. And I don't know, how many people are actually online? How many people are we looking at here? It's about... Okay, well, that's not bad. Okay, it's giving us a sample, you know what I mean, a Gallup sample at least. But, but, but you catch the point. What we're asking for right now is, is, do I live my life according to the principles? Is it about that? Do I have that in my head? The reason why I don't get, don't have what I wanted is because I violated the principles. So now my posture towards God has something to do with principles, right? And by the way, principles are important, as we said. But let's go ahead and show the results on that, okay? 4% say, not at all me. Wow, that's really low. 23, kind of me. 60%, or 50%, excuse me, 50% right in the middle. And 21% still over here saying, it really is about the principles for me. I love what we're doing right now. This has got me so excited. Can I say something? I love you guys more right now than maybe ever before in my life. I thank you so much for being real and transparent here because this makes a difference now.
There's a lot of people who think this way, don't realize that they're thinking this way, are living up to it, but there's other people that are thinking this way, realizing that they live this way, and they're thinking they're alone. And that just brings them into more guilt. And what you're seeing now is, is no, it's us. This is how we think. This is how Satan is perverting our understanding and getting us off track. Okay? All right, go ahead and go back again. Thank you very much. By the way, when, we, when we've looked at him, then go ahead and pop back so that I can be back, okay? God for you. Now, here's what God for you is. See, this is, here's God. We got him in our box. And what God is all about is, is he's going to give him things. See, he's going to give him, you know what, the chair and the, and the thing. And see, yeah, oh, there you go. Perfect, perfect. I'm glad we kept those things now. See the, the jerky and the cut chocolate I was supposed to pass out earlier? God is giving all of this stuff. This is who God is. And nobody really thinks that way about God, except that Sky points out something. When the sociologists interview our kids in our youth groups, do you know what the predominant viewpoint of God is by far? That God is a divine butler or a cosmic counselor. And why do they think that? Because that's what we're teaching them. God is there to meet every need. God is there to be for you in every hurt. Is he? Yes. He is, but they're getting it in a way that isn't balanced. They're getting it in a way that all they're hearing is, if I have a hurt, God is my solver of my hurt. No matter what it is, if I have a need, God is the one who brings me that need. If I have something, a desire, it could be a sinful desire, God doesn't bring me that, but I have a good desire, God brings me that. What we tell our people, and it's true about God, he wants to bless. He wants to give you more candy. He wants to give you more beef jerky. He wants to give you everything that he possibly can. That is the truth about God. But when it becomes the only thing we know about God, then it becomes a divine vending machine. Right? And that schizophrenia that we got into, that we talked about the last time, gets even worse. Because God, as I'm getting older, isn't giving me the things that I want to give. Because there is this progression in life, and you understand this, right? If you don't understand this about aging, then with every, with every fiber in my being, can I tell you something? Getting old sucks. <laughs> now, I'm not saying it can't be absolutely wonderful. I'm just saying that getting, getting old has a lot to do with things being knocked off of your plate. It's no longer possible that you can be the quarterback because the quarterbacks in the league are all younger than you. That's not in your radar anymore. The world is no longer your full oyster. The world is starting to narrow down. Can I just say something? That is a blessing from God. He is trying to bring you into what he made you to be. And that is in play from day one to day none. That is in play the entire time. This is what God is doing. And this thing that is happening in our lives is wonderful. You've heard me say it before, but let me do it quickly. My grandmother, when you're in your teens, you think you can go through a wall, and you actually try it, and you actually succeed every once in a while. In your 20s, you figure out going through walls is a little bit painful. Going around walls and over them is better, so you get smarter. In your 30s, she says that's your worst time of life. And the reason why it's your worst time is because you're thinking that you can still be everything and you know that you're not actually what it takes to be that. So you try really hard to be better than you actually are. And she said there's this tremendous tension in your 30s. Now, I get some people that are looking at me kind of like, I don't think that's true. You just go with the metaphor, okay? <laughs> the 30s are a time when the world is still, all the options in the world are still open to you. She says the 40s are the best time in life. And, there, and if, you just, if you just think about it for a second, the 40s are great. Why are they great? Because it's a time when you don't even really want to be a lot of those things anymore. And you know you can't be those things. And you know that you're not all that. But you ain't bad either. You know what I mean? It's pretty good. And you're getting victory over plenty of things, and you're doing pretty good. And you know what? You're getting into your wheelhouse, and you're getting pretty good, and you've got a lot of experience and wisdom built up now, and you're getting pretty good at what you do. And, and boy, you know you're still young enough to where people still want to hire you and stuff like that. So 40s is a wonderful time of expressing the fullness. But the fullness that is for you. And she said 50s would be even better if it weren't for the fact that your body starts hurting all the time. Okay? But, but do, you, do you get the drift? 
There is something that is wonderful about what God is doing as he's bringing us, as he's pruning us, as he's sharpening us, as he's taking us into a place that is more and more finely knitted and tuned to us in grace and mercy. And it isn't about the world is too many choices anymore. The world is these things that he's made me to be by his right arm. This is wonderful. This is incredible. It really is God blessing us. It really is God for us. But it's not the divine vending machine anymore. It's not I can be absolutely anything, is it? So here's our next question. How much do you feel your posture towards God is about him doing things for you? And can I say something here before you answer? Don't answer just yet. When I say that, Again, if you're younger, you're going to see God is doing these things for you, except I told you not to answer that way. But answer the way you actually feel and not the way I told you to answer. But if you're older, I want you to do something. Can I say something? If you're to the place where you don't really believe that God is doing that many things for you, and that's a problem for you, then that's still how you're viewing God. That he's supposed to be doing things for you. Do you see what I'm saying? So you're still going to rate yourself high on it. You're still in bondage. There's still this thing about you're thinking God just hasn't really given me as much as I would like, and that hurts me. I feel like I'm lesser in his kingdom. I feel like I'm lesser in his eyes. I'm not a profound disappointment, but I'm disappointing to him. So he's not giving me everything. He's giving me some things. But you see what I mean? I'm still in that posture. Now, I'm still in this place where it's for me. Now, I do want to say something. Somebody could say five on this and say, I really do believe that God is for me. But can you, can you for a second... Again, not answer the, that good religious way of answering because it's true. But could you answer the one that has to do with God being for you in a way that is unbalanced? So go ahead and answer. Okay? Okay? Now we gotta, I got to pick up the pace a little bit here. Okay? All right, go ahead and run it, guys. Once again, two is the big one. Three and four, though, are very big numbers. Okay? I still do process God in that way. All right? Let's go back. Thank you very much. Like I said, i got to pick up the pace a little bit. You for God. I get it. It's not God for me. I have to do all these things for God. I have to get involved in human trafficking to stop it. I have to get involved in doing water wells in Africa. I have to get involved in cleaning up Stevenson. I have to get involved in Jubilee Reach. I have to get involved in all this. Can I say something? Praise God that you're doing all those things. You're supposed to be doing all that stuff. Very much so. You're going to find God there in ways that are incredible. I say it all the time. But here's the point. Once again, if you don't keep it in balance, what happens? It skews off into a perversion. What happens to the person that all their orientation is, I have to do more for God? How much can you do for him? You're going to burn out. It's going to be too much. It's going to become a works, not, maybe not in the way of trying to gain his favor, but this is what I have to do to be a good Christian. I just have to do four, 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 four. Now, can I say, the more that you do for him, the better, if you do it in the right spirit. If you don't do it in the right spirit, what happens to you? There's a point in time at which you say, enough. The principle didn't work. Turns out God is angry at me, or all these, see how they all work? And then you walk away from it. See it? So again, just because we're picking up the pace a little bit, I just want to hit this. How much do you feel like your posture towards God is about you doing things for him? And again, I'm not asking the question of we all need to be doing things for him. I'm asking the question of in an unbalanced way. How much of that influence is happening inside of you? Okay? Have we all clicked? Go ahead. Look at that. The middle one is 38. The other ones. Now, can I just say something? Here's what we just discovered in those four questions about the four different postures towards God. We just discovered that we're really screwed up. 
we just discovered that we're not all that different from people in the world. We just discovered that we've got conceptions of God which we ought to know better about and don't. But it doesn't mean they're not still in play in our lives. It's good to know where your dogs are so that you can get them out of your life. Right? I don't mean dogs are bad. I mean get the bad things out. It's good to know where the problems are so you can do something about them. And here's the thing that I want you to do about them. Okay? When I talk about experiencing God, if experiencing God, this is that thing that I talk about all the time. If you don't know what this is, I want you to see. See, this is God, and what God wants to do is he wants you to come to know him. And then you go through this loop-to-loop. You know why he does it as a loop-to-loop? Because what he's going after is it isn't about the work. It's about joining him in the work. How many people have gotten to know somebody really well because you did some really big project with them? How many people been in the service and went through war with somebody and got to know them really well because of that? How many, you see what I mean? The way that you get to know people is that you join them in what they're doing and you experience things. And as you experience things, you begin to experience them. Right? Now, I think, I think you cannot come to know God if you do not join him in what he's doing. I think if part of your walk isn't about joining him in what he's doing for him, that kind of stuff, and joining him and doing that kind of stuff, I don't think you'll ever fully come to know God. But I also don't think you'll ever come to know fully God if you just do that. Because there is another thing in play, isn't there? The thing that should be underneath everything that we're talking about, the thing that should ground everything that we're talking about is this, you with God. Now, can I say something? That's actually not quite the right way to say it. It's actually God with you. Because he wants to be. And because you want to be. We're trying to get to a whole other place here all of a sudden. See, if you get to a place, how much do you feel like your posture towards God is that he loves you and that you love him? If that's what it's about, now you can go, you under God, and you're fine. Because it's not crushing weight. It is, there are things that you need to do in terms of obeying. You can go to you over God because there are principles in play, and not over God, but there are principles in play, and you're doing that. You can go that God is for you. You can go that you are for God. But it's always being kept in the right perspective because it's about the fact that you have a love relationship going. It's not a performance-based one or a rules one or a morality one or a ritualistic one. It is one that has to do with love. Relational, true, real love. When you do that, you get balance. Could you go ahead and, and click your number five? Tell me. And, and what I'm asking here is not that, yes, you love him and you know he loves you. I'm asking you to click it this way. Is this really what your walk is about at its fundamental level? Because if it's about those other things, it's about other things and love. So where is it really? Okay? Go ahead, you guys. I'm actually... I love that a lot of people answered hi here. And they get that. I think if I'd have explained that question more, if I'd have taken, if I'd have taken a little more time, I think we would have knocked that score down a little bit because people would have recognized that's not really where they're living, but that doesn't matter because here's where we're getting to now. Thank you for going back, and thank you for doing that. You can put your computers away, now we're done. Although sign up for men's. And, uh, here's where we are. Excuse me, I'm getting it. Oh, shoot. This is the earlier version. John Piper says this. It's all right, leave it. Don't do anything. Uh, John Piper says this, real simple. Okay? He says, the Bible, the gospel, is not how you get to heaven. The gospel is how you get to God. If you could live in heaven and be happy even if Jesus weren't there, then you're not going to be in heaven. Did you get it? Let me say it again. The gospel is not how you get to heaven. The gospel is how you get to God. If you could live in heaven and be happy, even if Jesus weren't there, then you're not going to be in heaven. Because heaven is God. There's no need of the sunlight. Why? Because God's glory illuminates it. You're living in him. The joy of going to heaven is not to get to be in heaven with virgins and all that kind of stuff. 
the joy of getting to heaven is that you get to be with the one that you love more than anybody else. What is it that God wants from us? How do we do this? How do we get to where it's about love? And I'm shortchanging. I apologize, but I'm going to go faster on this than I wanted to. But how do you get to the place to where you have a love relationship with God? This is the most important thing. How do you get there? It says it right here. Then the man and his wife at the very beginning heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. What does that mean? It means that God was coming into the garden to walk with them. To have them do something for him? No. To put some crushing weight on them? No. To give them some principles? No. To be something for them? Yeah, in a way. But what it was was just to be there with him. That's what he wants. The tragedy of life is that he gets to the place to where they hid themselves from the Lord amongst the trees of the garden because of their sin, because of their misunderstanding, because they started living in those top four things and not in the one that mattered. That God loves them no matter what. That God died for them. That he's the one at the right hand that is interceding for them at every moment. How do we come to know that love? I'm proposing to you that when you experience God, when you join in what he's doing, you get to know God a lot more. But I told you that's not the only thing that is key. There's two things that are key. It's not only the hand, the do. It's the mind, the heart, the soul. It's simply being with. It's God walking in the garden. So here's what happens. This is, this is me and God. Jeff is now God. This is me and God. And every morning what I do is I get up and I go for a walk with God. Now, I call it devotionals and I call it prayer. But can I make something clear? I've told you a bunch of times. If you could hear what I'm actually doing when I'm walking with God, you would say, that's not prayer. And I would say, you're right, it's not. Because prayer means, apparently, that what we have to be doing is have a list of things that we're praying for and have a bunch of people that we're praying for. I think those kind of prayers are absolutely wonderful and go into your closet and pray those all you want or go on your walk and pray those. But if your walk doesn't have in it an element of two friends that don't have no agenda, they got a straw that they picked up because they're on an old abandoned railroad track, and they're just talking, just spending a moment with each other. Can you pray in the shower? Yeah, of course. Can you pray in your car? Of course. Should you? Yes, absolutely. But you know what you can't do in the shower and in the car? You can't develop a good relationship if the only time you're talking to your wife is when you're in the shower or in the car. <laughs> the shower could be fun, but... <laughs> to him who is pure, to him who is not... But you get my point? If that's the only time that you're interacting, if that's what it's all about, it isn't about the thing that's most important to God. Because what he cared about was going for a walk with you. Just being with you. Did things happen in your life? Did you mess up? Yeah, absolutely. Bring it to your walk. Bring it to your friends. Is something else? Do you suddenly start thinking about something and realize it's not God? You know what? We think God doesn't have time to listen to my sort of, you know, I, I got lost in something else and I, I abused God's time. God stands outside of time. He's got plenty of it. He's got plenty of it because it means nothing to him. You are not wasting God's time when you're going for a walk, even if suddenly you start thinking about some television show. That isn't a sin. That isn't bad. You're walking with your friend and you just happen to be talking about something that's not terribly important, it doesn't matter, and then you do it. I can tell you one thing, I do a lot when I'm walking with God and being with him. I pray in the Spirit a lot. Why? Because I know that the Holy Spirit knows the heart and the mind of God and he knows me. And when I allow him to pray through me in a way that I'm connected with him, I know that what's happening is, is that I'm bonding even more intimately with him. I do want to say something. Whenever I pray in the Spirit, it's always to empty my mind because I'm always full of everything. And the second thing is I'm asking him to fill it with him, his revelation. So as I'm walking, can I say something? I talk about talking with God. Can I rephrase that? It's just all of a sudden something comes into my mind and I just realize something. I just have this thought. And I, I've been walking with him now for 36 years. And I kind of know which one of those thoughts that come into my mind are him and which one aren't. 
And when I get one that is, boy, I just live in it. I just think it through. I just allow him to see what I'm saying. How do I be with God? There's only one way. I've got to be with him. <laughs> and not while I'm doing something else. When this is all I'm doing. When this is what I'm doing. If I'll do this, I'm telling you, month after month, year after year. You know how it is when you meet somebody and when you first meet him, you kind of go, I don't know if I could like that person. Maybe they're crushing weight. Maybe you think they want something from you. Maybe they think you have to be something for them. Maybe, they think, maybe you think it's all about principles and stuff. But when you walk with somebody for a long time, what always happens? You find out what a unique, incredible person they are. What a different person they are than what you thought. You begin to transcend the stupid things you used to think about them, the other lesser things, and you fall in love with them. And when you fall in love with them and somebody comes along and says, oh no, now you've got to go over here and take the branding of somebody else, what do you say? No way. It may cost my life, but why would I go anywhere else? I'm in love. I have this. I would never betray this. This is it. Do you see it? Thank you, Jeff. Let me end with this. Just a they will, we will see his face and his name will be tattooed on our hearts. That's the goal. <laughs>